This is indeed Hooting Yard on the Air with me, Frank Key. Um, previously on Hooting Yard, uh, last week I read the first half of a story called House of Terps. What happened was that we um, met the, the main figure, Slobodan Kirpin, learned that he studied chemistry, went to the Arctic, followed a misshapen beast across the icy wastes and plummeted down a pit after it. Um, the beginning of Chapter 5 um, is, is it takes us away from the main story into an extract, a historical extract, from um, Maud Firebrand's book, A Bucket of Wisdom. And that's where we take up the story now with Chap House of Terps, Chapter 5. And the name of that place was Hoon. And at that time, Hoon was plagued by boars, sheldrakes, and enormous moth-like beings which emitted jets of gaseous yellow poison. The townsfolk were in a state of terror. All attempts to rid Hoon of the beasts which beset it had met with failure. At summer's end, thirteen of the citizens declared that Hoon held no hope for them, and they packed up their belongings, bade farewell to their neighbours, and left Hoon forever. Their names were recorded in a ledger by the town git. <coughs> Abigail Nug, a knock-kneed unfortunate. Bridget O'Hargreaves, the accident-prone sorceress. Chrysostom Puck, eel-headed toper of ill repute, who tattooed the stigmata displayed by Father Gobbit. Drambuie Quill, a brain-sick orphan. Ebbing Rutter, the well-known dribbling ventriloquist, whose dummies, festooned with feathers, became highly prized works of art. Firebone Sedge, an ignoble Norseman. Glunt Trey, the hateful xylophone maker. Hieronymus Udward, a cloth-eared whaling captain. Imber Vagabones, a morbid yodeler, much given to delivering his dirge-like melodies from atop a plinth of bones. Juniper Woodenberry, the gravel-throated Paracelsus of Hooting Yard. Kaka Zygo, a jam-smeared rogue. Lip Yock, the frightening zookeeper mentioned by Crutch in his groundbreaking and ingrate's bestiary. And lastly, Mulberry Zob, a lacklustre quack renowned for his homemade potions, foul-smelling, unpalatable and of no medicinal use whatsoever. Their journey away from Hoon to a destination unknown was fraught with difficulties. In the first hundred days, they were stricken turn and turn about by ague, botulism, cloacal horrors, diphtheria, emphysema, flea bite, the grip, halitosis, infestation, jiggers, knotted viscera, leech plague, mumps, nosebleed, otitis, pooping, queasiness, rickets, scrofula, tuberculosis, ulna fury, variola, rung joints, xantopsia, yaws, and zinc poisoning. On the 101st day, they were attacked by a swarm of hornets. 
On the 102nd day, they fell down a mighty crevasse. On the 103rd day, they smelled of pig. On the 104th day, they discovered that they had no food left. Zygo, a notorious glutton, had scoffed the last bag of custard before dawn. Sharpening their wooden sticks, they put him to death when the sun blazed directly above their heads. In the wilderness, the twelve exiles of Hoon would surely have perished had they not stumbled upon an implausibly vast tract of Pragvec bushes. The Pragvec is a stinking beige shrub, the leaves of which are nutritious, pleasing to the palate, and stain the tongue blue. A small amount of Pragvec leaves, say half an ounce's worth, is enough to keep an adult alive for over a week. The travellers harvested as much of the Pragvec as they could carry. On the 10,000th day, they arrived at the Arctic. Emboldened by the journey, Nig, O'Hargreaves and Puck had cast aside all fear of boars and sheldrakes. Quill, Rutter and Sedge also had what it takes. Trey and Udward lacked only the sense of sight. Vagabones and Woodenberry could no longer walk. They were carried in chairs. Zygo was dead. Yock's hearing was impaired. Zob's head had shrunk to the size of a potato or large plum. And underneath the Arctic, they made their home. House of Terps, Chapter 6. Are you, is this exciting? I'm excited reading it. It's, it's, it's that kind of story. Anyway, House of Terps, Chapter 6. Kirpin said, But why do you wear such an outlandish costume? To the innocent eye, you appear like some misshapen beast spawned in the laboratory of a maniac. Yet here we sit, in ridiculously comfortable armchairs, sipping glasses of port. I am bewildered. Maud O'Hargreaves said, I can imagine how you feel. This sort of thing has happened before. Twenty years ago, our little settlement had the pleasure to welcome another lone visitor. He was an unkempt, bubble-bearded professor with a passion for cocoa. He nearly drank us dry, I remember. We had to replace all the spindles on the mulching engine while he was here. I found him very difficult to fathom. He was not a happy man. On the day we foisted the chieftainship upon him, he flew into a rage. He slobbered and stamped his feet. I took him into the flamingo tent to calm him down, only for him to berate me in a series of verses sung in a grating whine. Mud had to be wedged into his mouth in order to silence him. Ho, ho, ho. But since he met his end, we have had no more visitors, and therefore no chieftain. Your arrival among us is most welcome, Slobodan. Slobodan Kirpin said, Little did I know, when I hurled myself after you into that gaping pit, that I was entering a vast subterranean network of chambers, caverns and tunnels, that a whole society existed beneath the frozen wastes. But now that I'm here, it seems perfectly reasonable that you should dub me your chieftain. After all, my scientific genius knows no bounds. I can only hope that your faith in me will be repaid. 
Maud O'Hargreaves said, Slobodan, I don't think you understand. Your scientific abilities have nothing to do with your chieftainship. The mere fact that you come from the outside world is enough. Any old hare-brained git wandering aimlessly about the Arctic would have served as well. I don't mean to disparage your scientific gifts. I simply don't care about them, nor will you find anyone here who does. We need a stranger to become our chieftain in order to carry out a demented and violent ritual. You see, 300 years ago, when our ancestors, the 12 exiles of Hoon, first settled here, their brains had been ravaged by their massive consumption of Pragvec leaves. As a result, whenever outsiders come among us, we install them as chieftain, festoon them with plumage, cake their hair with gum and talc and ambergris, deafen them with inane chanting, praise them, have them cascade in jalopies over imaginary sand dunes, and then put them to an unspeakably grisly death. Here, have another glass of this ruinously expensive port. Slobodan Kirpin said, I don't understand. To be quite frank, I fail to see the connection between your ancestors eating too much shrubbery and your desire to act in what strikes me as a highly uncivilised manner. Maud O'Hargreaves said, Hmm. Funnily enough, the cocoa-swilling chap said the very same thing. There simply wasn't the time to explain it to him, though. I tried to give him a sort of crash course. We began with the basics. I showed him the valves of different ages attached to a block of wood and the tentacles, bright red sepiola, propelled with such vigour and promptitude the size of Aristotle's lantern. Then I explained how the vagrant of a light, shivering texture furnished with several arms attached to the mother stem like a branch was intended as an outlet for the product of digestion. Every specimen of resplendent purple globular appendage was pierced with holes. Milne and cask were invoked. The oblique notch on the toot was large, thick, internally dilated, folded and with a semicircular horned operculum. Broken shells from broken seas, filamentous substances longitudinally sulcated, the edges of the base crenated, absorbent, burned portion by portion. But it was no use. Before we could progress to the more complicated material, our chieftain was given his last cup of cocoa, preened and primped in his finery, and had his head boiled. I can still hear his howls ringing in my ears, or rather, ear. Slobodan Kirpin said, But this is preposterous. What makes you think I'll submit to this barbarism? Mordo Hargreaves said, It is written. On the day of Curlewmush, the ritual must take place, and so it shall. Until that day, you're free to do as you wish. It's only forbidden that you should leave here. Not that you'd ever be able to discover an exit. Slobodan Kirpin said, Why not? Maud O'Hargreaves said, Because, Slobodan, there is no exit. Slobodan Kirpin said, Crikey! The canopy... Press Control-Shift repeatedly to capture the goat. Tranche 11. To avoid the bees, hold down all the numeric keys and move your avatar to the square beside the pillows. Tranche 4. Slight technical error. Bear with us.
That's the great thing about live shows on Resonance. You never know what's going to happen next. Anyway, onwards with House of Terps, Chapter 7. What a terrible predicament. How on earth did Kirpin escape? What wiles did he employ to evade the clutches of these subterranean devils? Was it really necessary for him to dye his head a shade of lavender and to stand inelegantly upon one leg, chewing on the pips of a blood orange? Where had he acquired the blood orange? Was it fresh? If so, through what conduit had it found its way to a community living hundreds of feet below the Arctic ice? If such a conduit existed, could Kirpin not take advantage of it? If fresh fruit, and in all likelihood vegetables, could travel one way, surely it would be possible for Kirpin to travel the other way, out of his prison, away from certain death, beyond the reaches of the macabre hooded figure whose ritual task was to boil Kirpin's head. How could Kirpin discover what he needed to know? What did Kirpin need to know? Would it do to have only a vague idea of what was going on, or would it be necessary for him to amass a copious body of information on sites, routes, timetables, schedules, inventories, tallies and registers? Would he need a gazetteer? How much time would he need in order to gather all the necessary information? Where could he begin? Could Kirpin bribe the surly, snag-toothed varlet whose job it was to monitor his every move? With what could the wretch be bribed? Would a packet of boiled sweets suffice? Was the man partial to linseed oil? Did he own a pencil case? Did Kirpin still have his pencil case? Anyway, what had happened to his rucksack? Was his mind failing? Why did his brain throb so? How long had he been in this place? Why did the refreshments with which they plied him taste so strange? With what infusion was he being poisoned? Was he being poisoned? Was this an awful preliminary to his execution? Why had they removed the aglets from his shoelaces? Aglets are um, the little plastic bits on the end of your laces. That's the technical term. Why had they removed the aglets from his shoelaces? Why had they returned them a few hours later, brightly gleaming as if they had been polished heartily with beeswax and fawned over by a wanly smiling drudge? Had they been so polished, so fawned over? Did it matter? Where was Kirpin able to get hold of the lavender dye? Why did he not arouse the suspicions of his captors? Or did he? Did they only pretend to see nothing suspicious when he absented himself for four hours from the potato gala? Were they, in fact, conniving against him all the time, lulling him into a false sense of security, allowing him access to the dye buckets, the blood oranges and the flamingo tents in order to mislead him? Was he barking up the wrong scent? Had he been thrown off the alley? Was he being led up a blind tree? Was wool what mattered? Had his hair been shorn? Could corn crakes take shape, shimmering in his fancy, blue and blurred, 
baleful, woozy, creaking. They took out the rest of his teeth. They fed him slops. They smeared nougat on his forehead and lime in his path. He was shown engravings of great deeds, strange creatures, fearsome engines, hideous disasters. Fibs and lies, lies and fibs. Rain plashed on his head and the water in his cup turned to ice. The clang of bells announced his coming, but his ears were stuffed with putty and he heard them not. Then the Wurgos spoke. It made a dreadful sound. Kirpin, had he known it, would have been thankful for his putty. The Wurgo intoned a monstrous litany, its assistant screeching out the provenance of each verse while the Wurgo drew breath. The Wurgo's mask shook as it spilled forth its awful words, reading from a completely incomprehensible manuscript, unearthed that morning from an iron chest, sprinkled with vinegar and julep, ceremonially chewed at the edges, stained with smoke. When at last the Wurgo ceased, drapes were pulled around Kirpin, and death stole upon him with sudden ferocity. After the requisite period of mourning for the dead chieftain, the ritual ran its course. The chambers he had inhabited during his brief stay among the people were sealed off, huge titanium portcullises barring the doors. They would remain in place for forty years. If another chieftain came among them within that time, other chambers would be found, less well-appointed, smaller and smellier perhaps, but adequate. No chieftain had yet lasted more than a fortnight before being executed. Once the portcullises were in place, every single churn in the community was used for making the butter of grievance. Flags were burned. Toy socks were given to all the children, with an inky likeness of the Wurgo's mask stamped upon them. Somehow, one of the socks found its way into Kirpin's rucksack, and the rucksack, instead of being placed on the pyre along with every other trace of his existence, was accidentally lodged in a crevasse by Maud O'Hargreaves on her next incognito mission to the surface many months later. Accidentally? It seems doubtful. But there the rucksack lay, frozen, a time capsule, awaiting discovery. And now, finally, House of Terps, Chapter 8. The last and final chapter. Apparently, there were two Slobodan Kirpins flourishing at the same period. 
We have followed the career of the so-called chemist chieftain, the legendary figure whose rucksack was discovered in a crevasse by Lars Tauk's expedition party in 1907. Tauk himself pieced together the known facts of Kirpin's life and it is upon his work that the preceding prose has been based. It has to be said that much of the detail of Kirpin's last days, including the supposed diary entry, is pure conjecture. In The Welk and the Drudge, talc apologist Gravel Slobber casts an intriguing light on his intuitive biographical methods. I quote, Faced with seemingly insurmountable hurdles to his narrative, i.e. utter lack of evidence, uncorroborated anecdotes, etc., etc., Talc would always follow the same procedures. Rising at dawn, he would arm himself with a high-velocity rifle and set out for the moors, spending the morning letting off a dozen rounds of ammunition to spectacularly small effect. He was once known to bag a muskrat, but later admitted that it was half dead when he found it. Returning by way of a hostelry, Talc would drink innumerable pints of stout and chew on a hunk of black bread. Belching and reeling, he would stagger home, bolt fast the doors of his study, and at once set about scrawling whatever pitiful nonsense came into his head, writing with a cheap biro on massive sheets of bleached newspaper. These semi-spontaneous prattlings would be revised in the calm of the evening by Sludge, his factotum, using a variety of dictionaries, encyclopedias, threeks and lexicons. On a number of occasions, more conventional scholars have covered some of Talc's ground and his indubitably stupid working methods were found to be surprisingly effective. For example, he correctly guessed the reasons for Bilge Grew's pumice mania, which Meck and Gubbins were able to corroborate in their posthumous study. Talc cannot have had access to the archive, and even if he had, his command of Flemish was never up to much. Finnish was another matter. That's the end of the quotation from Gravel Slobber. Slobber is generous in his assessment, but in the absence of any other material, we have to give Talc the benefit of the doubt. He did, after all, discover Kirpin's rucksack wedged in an Arctic crevasse. In his book, he gives the precise map reference. In 1913, Talc held an exhibition in which he claimed that the entire contents of the rucksack were on show. Sure enough, the catalogue lists all of Kirpin's ludicrous equipage and many little bags of rotted matter, once presumably samples to be used in poultice manufacture. And there is mention, too, of various notebooks and diaries. Tantalising indeed. Though not a living soul recalls seeing them, and no trace of them has ever been found. Of course, we know that malefactors ransacked Talc's country pile a week after his death, but would they have taken old papers, yellowing ledgers, crumbling notebooks? All the evidence suggests that they were mentally defective opportunists whose loot consisted only of three saucepans, a tray of worms and some grit. For Kirpin, then, we must rely on Talc. To date, his drunken ramblings are all we have. 
Even the earlier period of Kirpin's life has been covered over by history with a shroud of neglect. Wherever we turn, his life seems to have been erased. Records have been lost or burned or half-eaten by grubs and mildew. All those who knew him, and they were not many, are long dead, and they have left nothing but dust and ashes, ashes and dust. So our knowledge of Kirpin is Tauk's knowledge, and Tauk too is in his tomb. Sadly, even less is known about the other Slobodan Kirpin, the one we encountered at the beginning, implanting a wooden flagpole in the sod. Indeed, we know nothing of him at all, save for that one solitary act. Our source in this case is the Hooting Yard Gazette for the 14th of January 1894, which carried a small paragraph on an inside page mentioning his deed, thought worthy of note, because the perpetrator had, quote, a lantern jaw and a translucent yellow fob watch, unquote. But this is all we know of the other Kirpin, and it is only worth knowing because quite by chance he planted his flagpole on the very spot where, a year later, the foundation stone was laid of the House of Terps. So there you are. That was um, two weeks' worth of the House of Terps. We've got a few minutes left of this week's show, um, and I hadn't. Got, I, I, I thought I thought that it would take a half hour. So I'm kind of filling in with little bits and scraps. I just found this notebook, and um, it includes in it includes in it horoscopes based on alternative cosmological astrological system derived from the work of, and it's blank, and then it, um, I've scribbled down six signs. Fruit bat, tarboosh, mayonnaise, klaxon, slot, and nixon. What can that mean? And it also is the first draft here of um, a story featuring... Your old, your old favourite and mine, Ugo of Plovdiv. And it goes like this. In the old town of Plovdiv, Ugo plopped his pod onto a stool. Ugo's ma said, Ugo, why are you using a pod instead of a jar? Ugo's ma was blind, but she knew that the plop of Ugo's pod was different to the plop of his jar. Oh, ma, said Ugo, my jar is in the shed. Ugo's ma bashed Ugo on the head. Never leave your jar in the shed, Ugo, she said. 
Sorry, Ma, said Ugo. My pal Ulf put it there. Ah, said Ugo's Ma. On Friday last, in their hovel, in the old town of Plovdiv. And I'll end the show with... Um, this is not by me. It's an inscription on a grave in Southwark Cathedral. Um, Here Lockyer lies interred. Enough. His name speaks one hath few competitors in fame. A name so great, so generals may scorn inscriptions which do vulgar tombs adorn. A diminution to write in verse his eulogies which most men's mouths rehearse. His virtues and his Pills are so well known that envy can't confine them under stone. But they'll survive his dust and not expire till all things else at the universal fire. This verse is lost. His pills embalm him safe to future times without an epitaph. Um, Lockyer, who made pills, and he died um, in 1672 at the age of 72. And that's all for this week. Bye-bye.